welcome to another episode of the Global Health Chat. I'm Tara, the Editor-in-Chief at the AMSA Journal of Global Health. Today I'll be joined by Jackie Marr and Adele Evans in a discussion around the health, human rights and offshore processing of Australian refugees and asylum seekers. And before we proceed, I'd just like to acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the traditional custodians of the land in which we meet. I would like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Alright, and a quick disclaimer that we are not coming at this as professionals in this area. We are medical students and practitioners with no legal experience. The discussions ahead are derived from online resources, books and conversations, and we want to acknowledge that we do not come from a background of lived experiences in this area of refugee and asylum seeker health. But what we do hope is that we can empower the voices of those with these lived experiences. So without further ado, we have here our Crossing Borders leads from 2018 and 2019. Please welcome Adele and Jackie to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks. Thank you for coming in. So it's exciting that we're all finally sitting here together, or virtually at least. But before we dive into heavier discussions, I think it's important to give you both a chance to settle in a little bit. So Adele, Mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So I'm an intern, so a first year doctor working out in Wagga Wagga, New South Wales, where I did my clinical years for med school. I was the AMSA Crossing Borders uh, project manager in 2018. This was a position that I came into with an interest in refugee and asylum seeker health, and it really solidified my passion for advocacy and community engagement, particularly around refugee and asylum seeker health and their human rights. And after this experience, I'm really looking forward to a career that combines my love for clinical practice as well as global health and advocacy for rights for all. And we're looking forward to hearing your perspective and insights Mm -hmm. this podcast. So what about you, Jackie? Oh, what about me? Um, I am a, a final year medical student. I'm based at, based in Melbourne um, and I am just finishing off the Mel- Melbourne's MD MPH program. So um, the Master of Public Health year last year um, and as you can, as you may have guessed, I'm yeah, quite passionate about public health and global health um, and in particular refugee health um, and also child health and global child health. Um, so I was the Crossing Borders Project Manager following the, the very big footprints of Adele um, in 2019. Um, and then this year, I've also continued on with um, Global Health as the Vice Chair External. So basically doing a bit more advocacy work with the Global Health too. Can I just add also leaving some really big footprints yourself as well, Jackie. <laughs> so I'm really excited to be here and yeah, be able to draw out some more wisdom and insight from the both of you in a bit of a panel style discussion on offshore processing and refugee health and you know for the listeners out there that may be unfamiliar with what crossing borders is would you mind maybe giving a 30 minute 30 second not 30 minute 30 second spiel on what (laughs) crossing borders is oh I could talk for 30 minutes but I won't um so basically So it's basically one of the AMSA projects and particularly Crossing Waters aims to advocate for the health of refugees and people seeking asylum and, um, and looking to abolish sort of health inequities and experience by this group. Crossing Borders is a medical student run initiative in Australia. So it's important for us to really gauge where Australia at is at in this, this refugee crisis. So 
wondering what our policy currently is for refugees arriving in Australia by boat. Yeah, so Jackie and I thought we would focus on possibly, I think, the one of the more important refugee crises and health issues for refugees in Australia, and that's those arriving by boat. So before we jump into that, let's clear up a few definitions. So who is a refugee? They are a person who has been forced to flee their country because of a well-founded fear of persecution. This can be because of race, religion, membership of a particular social group or political opinion. Now, a refugee has had their request for sanctuary processed by the UN Refugee Agency, and it's been accepted. Mm. So who's an asylum seeker? An asylum seeker is a person seeking the right to be recognised as a refugee and receive legal protection and material assistance. They have all the qualities of a person seeking refugee status, except they have not yet been recognised as one. So you could argue that every single refugee at some point has been an asylum seeker. So asylum seekers come to countries without that legal refugee status yet. Being an island nation, the way that people can come to Australia is that they can come on a visa, like a tourist visa or a student visa, come and then claim asylum once they're here, or they come by boat. Now, for Australia, coming by boat historically has been quite controversial. And look, in all honesty, our government has led a 20-year, and you could always almost argue like a 60-year campaign of fear-mongering and racism about asylum seekers have arrived to Australia by boat. What's that led to is now what we call indefinite mandatory offshore detention for any refugee that tries to claim their legal right to asylum by boat. So let's break that down. Mandatory detention. That was brought in by 92 by Keating. We were the, one of the only developed nations for a while that does this to refugees until the US recently decided to copy us. What that means is not, anyone... Not something to be proud of. Not something to be proud of at all. Essentially, anyone who comes to claim asylum from Australia, we place into mandatory detention as a way of claiming that we need to health screen them and see if they're actually a refugee status. We could easily do this in the community, but we by and large put people in mandatory detention and we don't really have protocols on how we need to treat them in there. Indefinacy. Part of our most recent operation of offshore detention is that we add an indefinacy to this. This means that we give no guidelines, no structure and no rights for refugees to actually protest against how long we leave them in detention. Currently on average for refugees on offshore detention, we keep them for 833 days. We have some that have been there for over seven years in detention with no idea when this will end, no matter if they've been found to actually be a refugee. Then we bring to offshore detention. Now this is in our current climate for refugees that try to seek asylum to Australia by boat. Currently, Australia goes under a reactive policy. Our current government has created this policy of fear-mongering and stigmatism towards refugees that come by asylum. And our justification is that instead of letting them come and settle in Australia as their legal right, we send them to offshore detention. And an extra thing that we have added is that we have said that no one who tries to seek asylum to Australia by boat will ever be settled into offshore detention. What? They actually not only can't ever come to Australia, even if they were resettled, I didn't realise this is a bit of a fact, they actually can't come to Australia as even a tourist, like a holiday later in life. So specific. So and remember that there's men on Manus Island whose families were in Australia. And during this time of offshore detention, the Australian government actually tried to encourage them to go to the US and resign their rights of parenthood to their children. Like it's, it's completely abhorrent what we have done to people in offshore detention. So this is currently our policy of how we deal with refugees arriving by boat in Australia. 
So you've really painted this picture where a reality really where refugees are left, you know, this limbo where they don't know what's going to be happening and separated from their family. I can really see this being an emotionally taxing situation. But, you know, Australia claims that they're the third largest settler of refugees in the world. I mean, and that's that's the absolute sort of rhetoric that we hear from our political leaders, that we are the third largest settler of refugees and that we are doing yes. enough. But that's actually not really the case. And I mean, that story is muddied and it's really intertwined with asylum seekers. So the UNHCR does have a program of resettling refugees where they, they register refugees around the world saying they are ready for asylum. Now, if we look, 2018 is the best stats I've got. If we look at then, there was almost 26 million refugees in the world. The UNHCR had processed less than 0.5% of those refugees for this program. Now, from that program, yeah, Australia was the third largest seller of refugees. We settled 12,706 refugees just behind USA and Canada. But that's only part of the story. That's only 0.4%. In that same year, we had 15.6 million who sought people, who sought asylum and were recognised as refugees by other countries. Turkey recognised 400,000 people. Sudan recognised 190,000 people. Germany recognised 100,000. We recognised 10,300 asylum seekers. Mm -hmm. So when we look at it, asylum seekers, we actually rank 29th in the world. And if you look at gross domestic product, we ranked 60th. And then if you combine those together, so let's look at refugees through this program and asylum seekers. In total, we rank 54th when we look at gross domestic product. So what we can afford. So really we're doing an abysmal job in amongst the global refugee crisis. And what, with this sort of narrative about asylum seekers and queue jumpers, illegals, unlawfuls coming by boat, we've completely cut off the narrative of asylum seekers because the rest of our world is actually dealing with this issue or having to deal with it. And we're not. A skewed statistic and we've really stigmatised the issue. So I'm wondering now what our political legal structures are doing to address that. Yeah, I guess as we said, we really don't have any legal training and I definitely recognise this isn't my area of expertise at all. Um, but we know that law and economics, um, you know, are the real drivers of health. We, we know about the social determinants of health. Um, so I think there's basically a few basics that all medical students should know, um, but they're really not covered in your average medical course. Um, and most of them relate to human rights um, with the right to health being you know, the big ticket that we're talking about here. So bear with me. I'm going to explain a little bit and I hope um, just hang in with me because it's really important um, to get to get some of this detail to kind of get a grasp of really what, what's going on here. So basically, to start off with, we know that declarations and conventions are signed on an international level by UN member states, which includes Australia. And these form international law. So then in Australia, we have federal law and then we have state laws, which, which vary from state to state and territory. Um, and I think we've, we've seen this kind of come up with COVID, how these seems to matter more so what the federal government versus the state governments are doing and we've, we've seen this come, kind of come into play. So on the international level, the, the documents that are, are relevant to refugee health, we have basically the big one is the UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights. 
and just to kind of chat through how it works. So there's different articles and the first article is, you know, a pretty clear principle to start with. It's that everyone is born equal in dignity and rights. And then we have article 14. So every person has the right to seek and enjoy asylum in other countries. So as, as Adele was saying, not only is it not illegal to arrive by boat in Australia for this purpose, it's actually a, it's a basic human right to do so. So then we have Article 9, which is kind of hits the nail on the head. It's saying no one should be subjected to arbitrary arrest, detention or exile. So there are obviously a lot more things that are, that are interconnected, but th these are the kind of the main ones that I, I would think people should know about. So Australia has, has formally signed this agreement, you know, as a UN member state, but it, it's a declaration. So it's a declaration of human rights, it's not legally binding. However, there are covenants or conventions or treaties which are considered binding documents. And for international humanitarian rights, there are two specific UN covenants. One covers physical and political issues and one covers more sort of economic and socio-cultural issues. So these are basically two documents that are legally binding and they kind of expand on these articles that I've walked through. Um, that are included in the Universal Declaration. Mm. So under... So just to clarify, there's a UN Declaration of Human Rights and that's pretty much covered in the, the two conventions, except the conventions are the more legally binding ones. So yeah. I'm wondering here, what happens if Australia does not adhere to their legal obligations? Yeah, so exactly. You might be wondering, like, what the heck is going on here then? Mm -hmm. So there's, um, there's, these legal, there's these legally binding documents. So... We've got these, these conventions for human rights. We've got further conventions that um, specifically relate to the status of refugees and how to, how to treat this group of people. And they're, they're, they're binding documents that Australia has signed on to. Um, so we, and we've had a, a lot of international bodies like the UN and Amnesty International call, call us out for what's happening on Manus Island and Nauru. And kind of like, so, so what? So mm. basically, Despite having ratified these covenants, in Australia, we don't have a federal, federally acting piece of paper or legislation for human rights, which would act as the vehicle to incorporate international humanitarian law into our domestic laws. So, so some Australian states and territories do have documents like this, and that includes the ACT, Queensland and Victoria. So there's kind of it's kind of like a bit of a sandwich. So on the international level, we have that arbitrarily detaining people is um, who have, have sought asylum. It's illegal owing to its arbitrary nature, and that's Article Nine. And then on the the federal level, so Australia's yeah. national level, we have our federal government that, as we've talked about, doing this. Mm. Um, and then on a on the next level down on on the state or territory level, we have documents that, that state this is illegal under under state law so for example immigration detention centers in victoria we we can't arbitrarily detain asylum seekers in victoria under state law but but the land of these immigration detention centers is owned and that the staff are employed by the, the federal government so okay. i hope that that oh, makes sense a dilemma there, yeah. <laughs> it's a very messy sandwich messy sandwich it's, it's a messy sandwich, um, but basically there are documents that are binding and there are documents that aren't, but mm. either way, it's, it's pretty clear that Australia as an international citizen is really just, it's not good enough 
um, what the government has, is doing on in regards to offshore yeah. processing. And I mean, I think we, you know, you started with the beginning, Jackie, like this is very legal heavy and we recognise we're talking to medical students. But the reason why we want you to know these things is because it does impact our practice. It impacts our advocacy for people because this is legislated, but it's not it's not actually acted on because of these very finicky issues. But they are important, though, when this is how the government has gotten away with offshore detention and indefinite detention. And we know that this has impacted the health greatly for the people affected by this. So we, we're here to, you know, try to educate ourselves and empower ourselves with this knowledge. Yeah. So I guess that kind of begs the question, why or how does detention harm health? Um, which is what we're here to talk about. I'm not pretending to know about the, the rest yeah. of it, but I know something about the health impact. So I think a pretty, a pretty good place to start is to think about what, what we really think health is. So to give the classic definition that, that med students probably know is not simply the absence of disease, but a state of complete physical, mental and social well-being. So this is communicated in um, human rights as Article 12, the right to the highest attainable standard of health. And, you know, this definition with complete physical, mental well-being and social well-being, is, is, that's the definition they mean. Mm. So basically people need to be kept out of harm's way to be mm. provided healthcare when stuff comes up and they need an environment to flourish in. And I, I love that word flourish mm. um, because it, it's the right, it's your right to flourish. So basically when you think about why this offshore processing practice is harmful to health, you can think about it in the sense of it, it directly harms health. There's evidence that the, the healthcare provided was substandard and the environment is clearly not one to flourish in. So there is, there's lots of resources on this. Um, and there's lots of information available, but I figure like I can maybe I'll just cover some of the the main things. So, in regards to how it it directly harms health, I think it's it's pretty clear to see, as we've mentioned, you know, there's there's a, a loss of agency. It's, it's people being put into to prison-like environments and treated like sex criminals when they haven't done anything wrong. Mm. Um, you know, they've just tried to seek asylum in this place is is totally foreign so I can you can just so easily imagine how that would cause mental health distress so MSF um Medicine Sans Frontiers has or Doctors at Borders has, has been to Nauru which because, they were brought into because Australia was not providing adequate health care and just remembering this is Australia not providing health care so Medicine Sans Frontier had to come in yeah so and then they actually they got kicked out which is yeah. another, another story um but basically they they wrote a report about Nauru and they they called it indefinite despair um, and they basically described that more than 30 percent of people had attempted suicide and that they described this this situation as worse than many of the other disaster zones that they've they've worked in worldwide um, and they described people being diagnosed with resignation syndrome so basically and this, this included children who were because of psychological distress unable to eat or drink and were in a semi-chromatose state mm. So the um, the director of MSF has said that this this situation is a direct result of offshore processing, and it's about people's inability to handle this loss of control over their lives. Um, that, you know, you just can't cope with that that level of despair and loss of will after being there for you know five, six, seven years, and it's directly creating these symptoms. And I, I remember with that loss of control, a story that really uh, really hit home for me was the death of a young 20 year old man who committed suicide, whose mother and younger brother with him was on Nauru. 
and he was a dentistry student from the country before he came to uh, seek asylum in Australia. And every story of loss hits me in Nauru, but to think, you know, to think of another way of them about, you know, to think of a colleague and to think of someone taking their own life because of what we have done to them when we really should have had the privilege of settling them and supporting them in our country just hits home. You know, the, the idea of spending time in offshore detention is correlated with increased incidence of mental health is just, you know, really disappointing from a country that believes in a, a fair go for all. That's, that's our yeah. favourite motto. Yeah. And while it's difficult to know, know numbers for sure, we know that there's approximately 12 people that committed suicide during their time on, on Manus Island in Nauru. Mm. Um, so basically, you know, the evidence, it keeps showing that, that for many people, this offshore processing experience was actually more traumatising than that of escaping, you know, terror and violence in their, in their country of origin. Mm. Um, so I guess beyond, beyond mental health, if, if there's a way to move on from it, is um, that we, we know that also about numerous cases of, of sexual assault and physical assault um, by guards and by local people. And this, this is in, includes many counts of rape and actually includes the murder of a, of a 23-year-old man named Reza Barati. So we are covering some pretty heavy things here, really. But, you know, on another level, we also need to think about this, this environment they're in is, you know, what a malaria prevention, heat exhaustion, it's a tropical environment, it's overcrowded, infectious diseases are running rampant and so is heat exhaustion so it's it's quite simply directly harmful which was also and one of the justifications of mandatory mandatory detention was to screen people for infectious diseases and we've directly put them in harm's way of many infectious diseases so again so um then we have you know the health care that that needs to be provided so any any group of people um, we need to think about maternity care, chronic illnesses, preventative health care, accidents, injuries, all that stuff that's just life and comes up. So um, Australia is supposed to bear the full cost of implementing the arrangement that is offshore processing, but this really doesn't appear to be the case. So Australia spent millions and millions of dollars in a contract with an international hospital in Papua New Guinea mm. to provide care, but um, many people have just ended up being referred to the locally funded hospital which is basically being described as you know no more than a GP clinic and Australia's argued that they don't have a duty of care they've said you know they've said that and it, it appears to really place people in this this real grey zone where um you know Australia's charter of healthcare rights doesn't seem to cover them um but the existing healthcare systems in Papua New Guinea and Nauru are just unable to, unable to cope Mm. Um, and this brings up a, a, a legal principle, which is called non-refoulement as well, which basically says you're not allowed to send people who seek asylum away to somewhere worse. You just, mm. you just can't. You can't. And it, I mean, I think a lot of this evidence is pretty clear to see that, that that's what's happened. Um, you know, we have examples of people that have, have died because of the lack of health care, which includes a 24-year-old man who died from sepsis after his transfer to Australia was postponed because of political discourse. And his, his death, Hamid Kazai, was, it was all preventable by the coroner. Yeah. And I think that's something that, you know, when we think about 
the conventions that we've signed, part of that is, is that if someone seeks asylum in Australia, we have signed that international law saying we will recognise that right if you are a refugee. And part of that is offering them, yeah, equal access to healthcare, equal access to, to flourish, but as you say, you know, to living rights and working rights is what we can provide in this country. And then we send them to offshore detention and then we place an increased burden on these developing nations when the, the deal was that Australia would pay for everything. We don't it baseline offered these people equal access of healthcare. Yeah. Any kind and, of and like even even if we did, even if even if you ignored the direct harms that we mentioned, even if you provided them healthcare, um, I guess, you know, we just know this environment is never going to be one one to flourish in. Mm. Um, you know, we when you think about good health, it's hard. You have to work hard for it. You have to exercise. You have to eat well. You know, you have to keep up with your friends and family. You have to stay socially connected. This is what good health and well-being means. And if if there's any way to draw any empathy from our our experience of, of lockdowns during COVID is that you're not healthy and in those environments and this is when we're in a privileged setting of being able to access our own regular supermarket you mm -hmm. know a gp if we need to right away and we can go out you know in melbourne you can go out for an hour and, and walk um in fresh air so and and people are you know are still yeah. hopelessly struggling and we hope that these experiences build empathy within us so that we yeah. can all be in a, in a, charge to try to very twisted and different way it I don't think we can imagine to understand, but if it offers any sort of connection or empathetic insight, then I, I yeah. hope that people will remember. Yeah. Oh, no, I was just going to add, like, and that brings such a human component to what offshore detention is and the indefinency. I still remember talking to a teacher who worked on Nauru for several years, and what they said was what was traumatising for people wasn't necessarily the conditions where we've seen refugees die because they had a cut and weren't treated with antibiotics and then they became septic. It wasn't that their children weren't getting an education or that even though there had been sexual assaults by guards, it was that there was no hope. There was no end to what we were doing, which makes absolutely no sense when we just think about these are innocent people seeking asylum and they have no reason to be detained. And that's where a lot of the mental health and resignation syndrome came from, which is I think more scary than anything that we have done was that we were able to take away hope from some of, I think the most tenacious people in the world. Yeah. And I mean, cruelty, if you look at it, is extraordinarily expensive. It costs about 450, you know, $350,000 a year to have someone in offshore detention, 350,000. Now, if we had settled them in Australia, placed them in community detention, as in done a health screen, placed them in the communities, we figured out their refugee status, and then started giving them rights to work and to study, it would be $40,000 a year. And that would be providing sustainable things like access to work, access to study, so that money eventually, people would no longer rely on the government. And it doesn't take 10 years to settle someone. So our sort of creation of these offshore detention centers where we are actively harming and, and, you know, actually killing people sometimes in our, even just our most basic healthcare management yeah. in the act of trying to deter asylum seekers. When we know this, the global refugee crisis continues, yeah. it makes no sense on a sustainability sort of level and makes no sense on a humane level. And I think Australia is, and you know, we should be a proud multicultural society, but we really can't be until we start addressing how we were, we are sort of 
treating some of our most vulnerable in our global community. And this is how we are treating refugees in offshore detention centres in a way that has no justification, I think, at basis in how we treat these people. But, you know, ultimately, this is why sort of Amps Crossing Borders, we join sort of the calls of um, Doctors Without Borders, we call, we join the calls of all refugee active groups to end offshore detention and in the long sun, really reform how we detain people in Australia, because we are actively leading to short-term, medium-term and, and long-term harm of people in detention. And we have to remember that, that still includes children in community detention. But uh, I think for, you know, when I came into Crossing Borders, I came from incredible predecessors where there was a real evolution of we started to understand what was happening on Manus Island, particularly from people like from Abdul Aziz and Beruz Bouchani, who is the author of um, No Friends with the Mountains. As they were sharing their information, we were starting to learn what was happening in offshore detention. And around the time that I came into Crossing Borders, Manus Island Processing Centre was starting to shut down. It was because the Papua New Guinean government had realised they were running an illegal practice and had to close it down. So what was Australia's sort of response to that? was that we'll just leave all the men on Manus Island there, about 600 men, and they now forever will become Papua New Guineans, which may have worked, except we are again adding another stress to our third world nation, third world developing nation there. And also there was a very, you know, small but very real part of the uh, Manus Island population that were quite hostile to these men and have been linked with deaths of these men, and they didn't want that to occur. Essentially, the way our government responded was cutting these men off from food, from electricity, from water and from their medication. Uh, and from this, some very angry medical students in the um, community, and I've really got a reference, Carrie Lee and Kevin Chan from New South Wales, decided with the Sydney's Refugee Children's Health Group to create a medical student march about this and really largely about ending offshore detention. Uh, and Amps Crossing Borders, we had the privilege of joining them in that and creating a march in 2018, which was about ending offshore detention. And it was a march by medical students for our government, for our healthcare, representing that we believed in the human rights for all to flourish and to basic healthcare. Um, but, you know, I think something that's really interesting is through that, that was the year of 2018. And then of course, at the end of 2018, we started learning about Medivac, which was when we started learning about what was happening to children in Nauru and how they were experiencing resignation syndrome. And so we had the Medivac bring in for children of Nauru and for people that needed appropriate healthcare, um, which then brought Jackie into the case in 2019, where you brought Save Medivac in. Yeah, so I guess in we started off 2019 um, with, you know, off the back of a hugely successful Kids Kids Off Nauru campaign. Um, and as someone who's really passionate about um, children's rights um, and global child health, I was pretty ecstatic with this and we were, we were feeling really good. Um, you know, got the kids off, you know, families off. Now it's just the men that have been left behind um, and really hoping to build on this momentum, which really disturbingly kind of got railroaded. So we did have um, the beginning of, so the Medivac legislation was put in place and we were really proud to um, really own our voice amongst amongst those discussions. So, you know, medical ev evacuation is medical people's business. It really, it really connected for me. Um, you know, so many, um, so many people that ask me, you're a medical student. Why do you, why do you care about refugees? Mm -hmm. And just being mm -hmm. like, 
this is a medical issue. The legislation literally says it, medical evacuation. Um, so I think it really, it really clarified for the community why this was a health issue. Um, mm. Which sounds ridiculous that a politician was deciding if someone needed to be evacuated, right? It, it doesn't make sense. It would be us, yeah. you know. <laughs> don't let your politicians do your tax returns or, or whatever else it is. Don't let me do your tax returns <laughs> and let me take care of your healthcare. That's essentially what we were saying. It was all about staying in our lanes and owning our lanes, I think. Yeah. So saying, this is our business, um, this is doctor's business, and we've got opinions about it. Um, so most of that year was we... So similarly, we, we wanted to continue the idea of um, having a rally, having our, our presence felt um, about offshore processing and, and quite simply calling for the cessation of, a, of the practice. But we sort of had this, um, you know, also wanting to be useful this year, wanting to, not useful, but wanting to really achieve something tangible. And unfortunately, it looked like saving the medevac legislation was about, about all we could hope for for the year because mm. that momentum that got kids off Nauru seemed to really shift shift in 2019. Um, so we were really proud to um, put together a, a different kind of rally, um, but under the same banner of Detention Harms Health and get, get medical students involved all around Australia. Um, so we had um, medical students out in the masses in each capital city, except not Darwin, um, and mm. in Townsville um, and in Newcastle. Um, and it was just awesome to see. Mm. Um, and it was, it really unified, I think, unified students around Australia. And I, I yeah, I'm proud to say that I think a lot of younger students as well, sort of that was their, their intro into advocacy, just turning up at that rally and saying, oh, this is cool. Medical school can mean I can be a part of so much more, which was, yeah. which was great to hear. You know, which I think is really true, having come into my year of internship, that I think medical school is such a cool, unique time where you get exposed to all these different areas of advocacy, refugee rights, climate change, non-communicable diseases, and where you can so simply interact. And I think that's always the goal of crossing borders and of a lot of global health projects is trying to give feasible ways that we can use this voice. You know, we may not necessarily be doctors yet, but inherently as medical students, we have a voice that is well respected in the community. And it's, it's you know, almost creating that muscle like we do in learning how to pick up red flags in how to pick up our advocacy flag. And, you know, make, you know I guess essentially advocate for long-term solutions for the health of everyone that comes under our banner and that includes refugees and asylum seekers yeah mm. so unfortunately for 2019 um save medivac wasn't successful mm. um, and the legislation was appealed mm. um and that has had flow-on effects so um for um 2020 i've had the privilege of still being involved in the work of crossing borders indirectly um and basically what we've seen is a a really mixed year of you know COVID-19 really impacting refugee health and asylum, like migration on a, on a global, on a global scale. Um, and sort of in Australia, they're just not being the room to, to consider, to consider this issue and sort of there being no access to information. The numbers appear to be dwindling in offshore processing centers, but we can't access that information. We don't really know what's going on and we wanted to keep it relevant, you know, keep, keep our, um, finger on the pulse, so to say, mm. and put refugee health in Australia at the at the forefront of this this issue. Um, but 
what so we again we rallied um we rallied for our rally but we had to rally online instead which actually led to some really really phenomenal engagement again um and probably in some ways made um made engaging more accessible for some people um so i guess what we were what we're left with now is this really confusing time though where um where medivac legislation um has finished people have been brought over um to Australia on, on Medivac sort of um, flights mm. and they're, they're left in Australia now. The borders are shut um, and they're, they're locked in hotels. Um, and despite Again, ironically recording this in a hotel for a different reason, um, it's, mm. it's a totally different thing. I'm here for two weeks and I know that I'm going to get out to, to WA on the other side and I have you know, um, access to things like, you know, not being concerned that the government might take my phone away. Um, mm -hmm. I have control over my life, over my autonomy. I have access to my youth allowance being continued while I'm in here. Mm -hmm. um, there's a nurse who calls me every day and asks me how I'm going. Um, and I don't really know what to say to her. <laughs> um, but I think to, to remember that these are people that have come over because they're unwell and have been locked up, not able to exercise, um, and not able to, to mobilise in the community in, in Sydney and Brisbane, like, which at the moment, are, you know, they're, they're, they're no Melbourne. Um, so yeah. it's, and the, the key thing that we've found this year is just having access to the information has been, has been really difficult about mm. sort of the government, the government is, appears to be moving towards moving people out of the, the detention centres, but we've seen Christmas Island be reused again. We've seen hotels be used. And I guess, yeah, the concerns that we're just really not getting a clear picture on, on what's really going on. And human rights issues continue to be, you know, a result of the government's actions. Absolutely. And the pathway for refugee health has been one that's quite murky. And, you know, the narrative has certainly been one that is just of despair and tragedy. So, you know, for a little bit here, let's maybe shift gears towards what actually could be done. So what could these solutions potentially look like? This is my favourite thing to talk about. Yeah. And I think solution... Mm. Solutions put a different spin on this whole story, right? Rather than trying to bring truth telling and in stories, let's, let's talk about what we should be, what should we be focusing towards? And I think also like we're all solution based people. So what I really like for like the refugee solutions is, um, yeah, is, is UNICEF has a great sort of um, idea about what we should be the nine steps towards Australia being better with refugee and asylum seeker health. Let's just focus on a few here. Essentially, we need to reaffirm what we said for the Refugee Convention and recognise refugees and asylum seekers as people who deserve basic human rights and non-refoulement. We need to urgently resettle everyone from Manus Island and Nauru and end this narrative of offshore detention. It is one that is, I, I honestly think, is a shame of our modern day history and should not be repeated. We need to start thinking about the global refugee crisis. We are in a huge global refugee crisis. There's never been more refugees than there are today. Our current process is out of sight, out of mind. You know, we put a wall up and we say, we've stopped the boats. Our, uh, you know, we, we are finished. We, we go through the refugee resettlement program. What we really know is all the refugees that can't seek asylum by boat through Australia are backlogged in Indonesia and Southeast Asia. 
and they're having worse and worse outcomes for their life. We need to create really tangible regional and offshore uh, sort of a resettlement programs with Indonesia and with Southeast Asia, where we can actually help refugees where they are, help actually get them refugee status, give them rights while they are there to work and to healthcare and start resettling them. And I think it's um, just worth saying that like when Australia does this, this program through the, through UNHCR, which brings refugees who've been recognized while mm. they're overseas and then flies them to Australia and, you know, they are recognized refugees in Australia from that, from then on, we actually do pretty well. Like we, excellent we, job. we, we have great, well, I'm not saying that the health of all of these people is great. Obviously, everyone has their difficulties and differences, but we have, we're, we're a multicultural society. Our healthcare is well set up to respect these people. We have clinics specifically for refugee health, for children, for adults and everything. Like we, we have, we really have the vehicles in place to treat, yeah, to treat these people well. And, you know, Australia is, is great for all the, all these other reasons. We, you know, we are a welcoming and multicultural society who believes in a fair go. Absolutely. So really what we need to start assessing is what about the refugees that don't go through that UNHCR program? And what about the real reality is that there are people that are trying to seek asylum to Australia by boat. And, you know, ideally we don't want anyone making that treacherous journey from Southeast Australia, but it is a reality. So we need to start transitioning away from that and creating a more sustainable and feasible solution for refugees, for asylum seekers, and, and you know, I think for Australia. I guess step one to all this is just acknowledging it and educating ourselves and those around us on, you know, the situation yeah. and the hardships that these refugees are undergoing and that does happen through advocacy and hopefully through advocacy we can start to see these gaps in policy being filled up and these murky prospects being clarified as well. The foundation of all this comes down to just really humanizing this issue and, you know, not not seeing it as a series of numbers, but really seeing it as the human stories that are really experiencing these flaws in our systems. But yeah, thank you so much uh, to both of you for taking the time today to give us more insight into human rights offshore processing and refugee health it is certainly a complex and heavy topic one that really needs to be discussed and you both have managed to throw in just the right amount of statistics legal facts jackie and personal Sorry. stories that really helped us engage in this topic a little bit more so thank you so much for taking the time today thank you yeah. love being here